So we're back. Finally. After our summer hiatus. Yeah. Took the summer I think we're going to be European. We're going to take summers off. Well, I think we deserve summers off. There was a lot of stuff going on too. I know. I know. I kept thinking like, we have to have an episode about that. We have to have an episode about that. But I was moving and again, and just got settled in and started the new semester. So yeah. So there's a lot going on in your life. I decided teaching five classes over the summer was a good idea. Right. That was a lot going on for you. That was ridiculous. Um, yeah. So it's been a busy summer, but we're back. We're back. Uh, today we're going to be doing like a, a special episode. I mean, it is a history episode, but it's about 9 11. Yeah. Which is now a historical event. Which is in itself frightening, but um, yeah, it should be fun. Uh, we're back though. We're gonna be back now with weekly episodes. Um, and uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to an incomplete history. I'm Hillary, and I'm Jeff, and we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So, so kind of before we jump into the topic, which is 9-11, um, a weather update. We had a thunderstorm last night. There were 100 <laughs> lightning strikes in San Diego County last night. I hope none of them started a fire. Uh, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. But it, it like rained a little bit here, but evidently a little further north. It rained a substantial amount on the coast, right? I, like I live on the coast. We don't get thunderstorms here no we get them inland in the mountains and the desert we do not get them here on the coast at all um so it was very odd it was harvey was not pleased at all mm-hmm. no he was he's like what is, he's like what is that mm-hmm. um and it was i was so excited i like turned all the lights off and silenced everything in the house and opened up the doors so we could like listen to it um it didn't last very long but it was it was an event. I mean, we did have weather yesterday. So that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, that's something to report for sure. I mean, I uh, since moving to Florida, I have cried. Down. I have cried more than once regarding the weather, which well, is I, it's the worst weather I've ever. Lived. I grew I've lived up in there. so many places, and this is the worst weather I've ever lived in. So Hillary lives in the town that I grew up. Him, which was Gain- is Gainesville, Florida, University of Florida is there. Um, but it's funny because people from outside the area don't believe you when you tell them you can set your watch in the summer to the thunderstorms. Like every afternoon, same time, every day, these thunderstorms roll in. And, and it's it predictable. Is so humid all day long. Mm-hmm. It, everything is just soaking wet all day long. It is 90 some odd degrees all day long. I mean, it doesn't even get cooler in the evening. No. Sometimes it gets hotter. Yeah. Sometimes it's hotter at like five o'clock than it was at like one o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I've literally cried more on more than one occasion. And I don't think it's just the pregnancy. I think I'm actually like miserable over this weather, but I've heard it's nice in the winter. So 
It is. I'm looking. I mean, the nice and I mean, right after it rains, there's like a ten minute reprieve you get. A reprieve from it's so wet. It's wet, but it's there's a little bit of relief before the moisture kind of all evaporates and like you're back to like swamp like conditions. It's just the worst. I absolutely <laughs> hate it. And I've lived in some real janky places in terms of weather. Like I was in central Pennsylvania for a while. I was in southeast Texas for a while. I was in Mississippi for a while. They all have their own weather nonsense. But I would say this is like the most consistently miserable weather I've ever lived in. Well, this is the worst time of the year also. You're there. Yeah. This is the worst. July, August, September are just gross. By the end of middle of September, it starts to get better. I look forward um, to this. And then by October, it's great. It's okay. great weather. But early September can be can be pretty bad. I mean, I remember being at football games, early September football games, and it was just disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a baptism by fire then because I moved in July. So I moved at the yeah. worst time. Yeah. Well, so anyway, anyway I just so, keep following Jeff around the country because he had also yes. lived in Houston where I lived for a well, while you, too. So you're moving to New York next, obviously. I, yeah, I might become a pastry chef. We'll see. Interesting segue. So New York City. Um, so tomorrow, we're recording this on the 10th. Tomorrow um, is the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Um. And as historians, it's an interesting thing because our students now were not alive when that happened. Um, I did a poll in class today. I asked, I said, raise your hand if you were alive when 9-11 happened. And I got three hands raised and they said, that one said, I, well, I was six months old. Or I was three months old. I was, you know, just born. Yeah. So yeah. they don't know. it. Um, so it's, it is, an, it might as well be the civil war for some of these students at this point. It is something in the past. Um, so historians, you know, we have to kind of start wrestling with that and figuring out how, what are we going to do with this? How do we teach this? Um, how do we contextualize it? Tw- is 20 years a long enough time to have some kind of healthy distance from the event? Um, but uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have this kind of conversation today was I have connections myself. I lived in New York. I worked in, in the investment banking industry. I actually worked in WTC2 for quite a while. Um, and uh, I was there that day. And um, it's interesting in our little conversation before we started recording, Hillary asked if this was going to be a therapy session. And I hope it's not. I honestly don't know. I know a couple of years ago in a U.S. history part two class, which is kind of modern U.S. history, um, we got to the global war on terror and stuff. And a student asked me about September 11th and another student brought up a conspiracy theories. And we can talk about those briefly, although I don't want to give too much airtime to those. When we've actually gone into those yeah. in the conspiracy theory episodes. So. And and, you know, and I started responding and I started to get very emotional and I was like, whoa, like you need to dial this back a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, September 11th, 2001, it was a Tuesday. It's gorgeous, gorgeous September day in New York City. The sky was so clear. Not a cloud in the sky. It was warm, but not hot. It was, you kind of felt it was the last... 
it was the last kind of good day of summer you were going to get before it started to turn to fall. It was a great day. It was a uh, primary election day. Um, there was a mayoral race that was going on. So it was the mayoral primaries. Um, and Rudy Giuliani was leaving. He was done as mayor. So there was this whole kind of thing about voting for who would be his replacement. Um, and it, and it was a great day. I mean, this uh, up until things weren't great. It was, when I tell you the nineties in New York were amazing. I cannot begin to tell you how amazing they were. Um, up till September 11th. I mean, September. I, I think the nineties in general were a really good time. And I, and I was going to ask you a little bit about that because when September 11th happened, I was, I was in middle school. So I do remember it happening, but I don't have like an adult recollection of it. Um, mm -hmm. but, and then of course I grew up as a, as a little kid in the nineties and I remember it was great. And I don't think it was just because I was a kid, but because I think it was like this moment historically where the cold war had finally ended, right? The wall came down. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do bomb raids anymore. Kids aren't hiding under desks thinking that the H bombs coming. Um, and it was kind of like this 10 year period of relatively peaceful, a sigh of relief, so to speak, because, you know, the cold war had been raging for decades and it caused a lot of tension and all this, and you had the space race and all this stuff happening. And the nineties were just kind of like this decade, like that, that sense of relief that, that came along with the end of the cold war only lasted about a decade. And I think that nine 11 is when we all kind of got mm -hmm. snapped back into reality. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a fool's paradise we were living in. I think we were naive, and it's funny. So Francis Fukuyama writes this great piece when the Berlin Wall comes down called The End of History yeah. in 89. And it, we, you can read that piece today and be very like, how are these people so delusional? Because basically there's this whole thing, is this the end of war, right? Are we done with kind of global war? What do we do now? What's the future going to look like? Um I think we all wanted it to be true. And I think that's the thing is we ignored things in the nineties that went against that narrative and we embraced things that reinforced them. So there a lot of bad things happened in the 1990s. The United States is, in, there's this bloody war as Yugoslavia breaks up um, with racial cleansing and genocide and all these things happening. Um, there's a very, anxious situation the United States has with China for quite a few years during the 90s. Um, there's this whole anxiety of what's going to happen to the Soviet Union now as it breaks up, what's going to happen to their nuclear arsenal. Um, how the, but we just ignored it all. And we turned up the Nirvana and we put our flannel shirts on and... We got really excited about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And that's what and, I remember the most right. about the night. And and we used our AOL three and a half inch floppy drives and never had to buy floppy disks anymore because AOL would send you one every month to try to get you to sign up and you just rewrite that and put your own files on it. So it was a very because the the internet started to be a thing. Um very much so. And by the late nineties it very much is an omni omnipresent for many industries. And right alongside of that is 24 hour news networks. 
Because even though they had existed, I think CNN comes out in the 80s or something, like it wasn't as ubiquitous. Like people weren't actually just watching CNN or C-SPAN all the time. But by the late 90s, it became 24-hour news coverage became really a thing. See, so this is a point, and, and, and you're in good company. A lot of historians argue this, that this is the, the moment kind of the 24-hour news cycle emerges. I disagree. I think it's the first Gulf War. So I remember the first Gulf War, everybody watching CNN constantly Oh, okay. to stay because you had the embedded journalist and you were just like, what is this? Um, I do think there's a change that happens in the 24-hour news cycle with September 11th. Um, and I mean, the interesting thing is this, I think it becomes less newsy after September 11th. Um, and you get a lot more entertainment, right? That's really weird thing to say. Infotainment. Infotainment. Um, but I mean, the 90s are just, they are an incredible period. Um, I mean, maybe that's a function of me being in my twenties. Uh, maybe it's a function of me having a good job. I mean, the jobs that I had in investment banking were the easiest jobs I ever had in my entire life that just paid an inordinate amount of money compared to what you had to do. Uh, I was system support. I was not an analyst or anything like that, an investment banker. So I didn't have any of the stress of that. It was it was a really good time. Um, I had a great loft in New York City. Um, you know, my husband worked at Princeton, reverse commuted. He had a super easy commute. He had a job he loved there as well. It was a great time. And it was so, it was, uh, Rick and I would jump on a plane in LaGuardia on Friday afternoon and fly to Bermuda for the weekend. That's how it was just like, and we would do it on the spur of the moment too. It'd be like Friday morning. He'd call me from Princeton and be like, you want to go to Bermuda this weekend? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And we'd like hop on a plane and go to Bermuda and we'd be in Bermuda for the weekend. And and you could do this in the winter, right? And you'd like leave snowy New York and you'd be in Bermuda and get some sun and some warm ish weather. Bermuda in the winter is not terribly warm, but it's warmer than New York. Well, and then you think about, so if you're thinking about that in terms of like pre-September 11th, like it was a lot easier to go and get on an airplane. It was. It was, it was not, it like, was not a massive so, pain in the ass. So my preferred airport in New York was always LaGuardia because it was the smallest of the three airports. It was super easy to get to. And it was the shortest distance from the entrance to, from security to the gate. It was like super fast and, and security honestly, was pretty lax and security yeah. was pretty lax. And there, and there would be times I would fly out of LaGuardia. I would get to the airport 30 minutes before my flight, mm-hmm. especially if I was just doing carry on, there was no reason to get to the airport earlier than that. And I'd just be on the plane and I'd be wherever I needed to be. And it was fantastic. And the city had a vibrant cultural scene, great restaurants, such good restaurants. For a while, I left banking and became a pastry chef. That's a whole other story. Um, but th- it was just a really vibrant scene. And it was there was always something interesting and fun to do in the city. Um, and we really were living at the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, New York was the center. 
was the epicenter of everything happening. Um, and, and then that changed. Um, frighteningly fast too. Yeah. I mean, so I think if we're thinking of a timeline and, you know, when we're thinking about September 11th and trying to teach about it, um, I think it is important to set that context about how important New York city is number one, right? You know, you saying it's like the center of the the universe and all that, like, yeah, absolutely. And there were targets in Washington, DC. Of course, one of them was hit. The other was not. Um, and we'll get into talking about how that all went down, but the main target was like trying to hit at the heart of America. I think that that's like the best way to describe it is because those, the buildings were so iconic. They were central to, you know, the United States economic system. They were representative of so much in terms of not just the way that they looked being iconic, but that, that they were the center of our way of life in a way, like they were kind of representative of our way of life of capitalism. Right. And, um, so it was really symbolic that they chose those targets. And I think that setting the context of how important New York was at that time, but then also just how iconic those, those buildings and those targets were. Um, I think that that's important for students to understand too, that it's like, I'm trying to think if there's, something that is as iconic as the the twin towers at the moment, like what could be that thing? I mean, I just think that that's an important thing to, to mention to students. The, the towers, the symbolism of the towers, um, the twin towers were dedicated in 1973 and it was a decades long kind of project kind of building these buildings. And my first exposure to Twin Towers was when I was a child living in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and I went to see a movie in 1976. It was a remake of King Kong. Uh, it starred Jessica Lange. And instead of the Empire State Building, it finished the Twin Towers, featured the Twin Towers, which were only three years old at that point. And I remember first that movie is just, it is a guilty pleasure. Um, I guess objectively, it's not a very good movie. I love it, though. Uh, it's Jessica Lange's kind of premiere. This is her first major role. Um, but the the kind of finale of the movie takes place atop one of the t- Twin Towers. And it was just stuck in my head. And kind of became an obsession. Because I there was something about these buildings I found incredibly beautiful and modern and when they were taller than the empire state building right by, they, they by, were the tallest yeah, buildings these were the, the tallest skyline, buildings and they made the new york skyline lower manhattan growing lower up. manhattan well, right yeah, so I we mean, have i remember seeing you know pictures in new york i saw them i have pictures from when i went and visited when i was a kid and i took so many pictures of the buildings because i just thought they were so cool yeah yeah well, I mean, I, I mean, and this is the thing is the, the, um, for lower Manhattan, it's ubiquitous. Um, and for pictures of New York city, it was, it was as well. Now, when you're in the city itself, lower Manhattan has a lot of development sky skyscraper wise. And then there's kind of 
um, the Lower East Side, Lower West Side, Chelsea, places like that, where there are, there are largest buildings. They would actually be large in any other city, but for New York, they're fairly small. And then you get to Midtown where there are more kind of skyscrapers. Um, but the Twin Towers definitely dominate the Lower Manhattan skyline. They are designed uh, by this architect, uh, Yamasaki. And in the first interesting, but not kind of nefarious connection, Yamasaki, when he got this job, had previously designed Dahran International Airport in Saudi Arabia, which was contracted by the Saudi bin Laden group. This is Osama bin Laden's family. So Yamasaki designed this major airport for Osama bin Laden's family and the World Trade Center. Conspiracy theorists have a field day with that. Oh, really? Um, but one thing Yamasaki did in the design of the towers, and a lot of people don't know this, he took a lot of inspiration for his t- from his time in Saudi Arabia, kind of looking at Arabic architecture, and he incorporates those features into the towers. So the towers are really a marvel of modern design because they wanted to maximize internal office space. And they already knew they're going to have these really tall towers. They're going to need... M- a huge elevator bank in the center of the building. Well, if you're going to have girders as well, you're going to end up with very little office space. So what he actually does is does this exoskeleton kind of construction. So the two supporting features of the tower are the the central concrete elevator shaft and then the exoskeleton. So those you have these girder these these metal bars on the outside and they're actually supporting features. It's, they actually support the weight of the building. But um, down towards the lobby level, they flare out into pointed arches. So there's all these elements of Arabic architecture that Yamasaki incorporates into the Twin Towers. Um, There's this huge plaza in the middle, which is just gorgeous. And prior to the construction of the Vista Hotel, um, which Yamasaki really opposed. So eventually this hotel gets constructed, which kind of sits between the towers a little bit. Um, it's not technically between them, but it actually blocks the view between them because prior to its construction, you could stand in the plaza and look between the towers out into New York Harbor. So there's this kind of gateway and the buildings were gorgeous. And what's strange is, you know, and I lived in New York for some time and the weekend before September 11th. So this would have been the eighth or ninth. Um, I, so I'm an early adopter of technology and I had a digital camera and it was not very good quality, but it was okay quality for the time. It was really good quality. Um, I was out taking pictures um, on the Hudson river. And for some reason, before we kind of went home that afternoon, I turned and like looked down at the towers and took a picture. Cause I was like, Oh, I just love those buildings. Um, I just love them because their simplicity this is, it's so American, I think, in many ways. And, and it's odd, like, that I decided to take that picture that, like, two days later, they wouldn't be there anymore. But, you know, these, these towers represented New York City. They represented American capitalism. Um, 
American prowess? Politically, he, economically. He represented American excess. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I guess. I, they but did. I, I, they did. But I how are so. they excess? How are they excess? Because they're huge. They're the, they're, the, they're, the, they're the tallest oh, in the skyline. Yeah. And that, that's what I mean. It's like, but they I'm not tacky. saying it in a negative manner. No, I don't think it was tacky. I think it was just... It, they were a they were mighty large structures in the middle you, of an already mightily large city. Can you imagine what they would have looked like if that idiot from Queens had had any hand in designing them? Are you talking about? Um, yes. <laughs> um, was it Robert Caro? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, I'm talking about the former president of the United States. Oh my God. Well, yeah. No. There would have been gold and pink no, marble. He doesn't design anything. He's never no, designed but, anything. Right. But life. I mean, imagine if he had like influence on the way it looked. Oh yeah. That wouldn't have been. They would have been just awful looking. So you took my word excess to mean like gaudy. I didn't mean that. I meant like, it just is kind of like a show of our, how extra we can be when it comes to making okay. stuff. Cause yep. I, I don't think, and and I think that culturally speaking, like that was what they were trying to hit the heart of, because they they were ups, upset about American, the American way of life, and about capitalism, and about Western excess, etc. And so I think that you know attacking those really iconic structures was kind of just hitting at the heart of like w- what it is to be an American, and it's like those towers are really representative of that. I think. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so I know the official line of why they say they attack it is is because of that. But I think a lot of it has to do with, if you look at 93, so why does Ramza Yusuf, why do Ramza Yusuf and Aedes Mo target the World Trade Center in 93? It's punishment for the continued U.S. military presence in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf, after Operation Desert Storm. So prior to Desert Storm, the U.S. presence in the Gulf was not very large or sustained. But after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the United States expelling Iraq, um, there became a permanent large-scale presence, particularly in places like Saudi Arabia. And for Wahhabists, who are kind of these hardline Sunni Muslims, that is untenable. I mean, these are basically crusaders. It doesn't help the fact that some of the language that was used in the Gulf War sounded like crusader rhetoric. Going well, to liberate and... Yeah, but the other thing is, it's like many of the people who orchestrated, planned, and carried out the attack were had lived and were educated in the United States for many years. Mm-hmm. So they, it's not that they were in that space and offended in that way. It was like they were in this space. They were in the United States space. They were educated in, one of them was educated in North Carolina, right? And others, you know, they took flight lessons in San Diego and they were living amongst us here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, so I'm not, so what I'm not saying is their reasons for targeting the towers are complicated. So the 93 attack um, it destroys um, the concourse underneath the towers, parts of it, which wasn't small. It destroyed part of one of the parking structures. Um, there was construction that took some time to, con- to complete. Six people lost their lives in it. 
Um, more than a thousand people were injured. Most of the injuries were fairly minor. Um, but what's interesting is um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, this kind of blind cleric who was the the perpetrator of this, he promised that in the that one day those towers would come down. So kind of fast forward through the nineties and we get to September 11th and, and these guys took advantage of an American system that wasn't security focused. Um, they boarded flights at places that had even less security than your standard airport. Um, and basically hijacked planes with box cutters. So they knew not to take guns because they knew there's no way they could get those on board, but they took these box cutters, hijacked planes. Um, the great weather in New York, I think helped them. That was to their advantage. If it'd been stormy weather, maybe they couldn't have made it. Um, well, and the targets they picked too. I mean, we were talking about how they're iconic and they look like this and look like that. Like, from a speaking from like a amateur pilot perspective, maybe they were like the easiest targets in the New York skyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do so. Oh like yeah. That, they are. I, mean, they, I yeah. know that they're skilled, obviously skilled. Like they know how to fly the plane, but like they're very, like those are pretty big targets to be able to, to zero in on. So, I'm going to give you my experience that morning. Okay. Um, I am not promising everything I say is 100% verifiable. What actually transpired in the order it happened. Um, it's funny. One of my really good friends, he was in New York at the time too. We still discuss this, that our memory gets a little foggy on some things. And I think this is about historical memory, right? I mean, this is, that's what's really important about this episode, because we've talked so many times about historical memory and how oral history sources can, you know, they be good, but they're also a little hazy. And so this is a great, great example of what we talked about a lot of times. So, so Tuesday morning, September 11th, uh, 2001, uh, it was a primary election day. I had worked, um, I worked second shift. I usually worked with the Asian desk, I had just recently moved from lower Manhattan to midtown Manhattan. I'd switched banking groups that I was working with. Um, and I had been working the second shift cause I worked with our Asian desk and I'd gotten home up, think about 1am and normally I would not have been up this early. Um, but I got up early cause I wanted to go vote in the primary election. And then I had a couple of little things I wanted to do. Um, cause Rick and I were planning another trip to Bermuda at the end of the week. Like we, like, it was like, we wanted to kind of squeeze out all we could of this summer. And so I was up kind of getting ready and cell phones were a pretty new thing at this time. And I like showered and got dressed and everything. And I went out and Rick had like called and left a voicemail on my cell phone. And so I called and got it. And he was like panicked. He's like, where are you? Some kind of plane just crashed in the World Trade Center. And I was like, what is he talking about? So I like got my shoes on and kind of moseyed out. And this is, so he had called just after 8.46 a.m., like just after the first plane had hit. 
I had a lot of friends that still work down in WTC2, and I went down there a lot to meet them for breakfast or lunch. Um, I still had contacts down there. One of the banks I worked with was still trying to get me to come back down there. And so I went outside, and we lived on uh, 28th Street, which is the old flower market district, between 6th and 7th. So I walked to 7th Avenue and looked down, and you could see the towers. And I looked down at them, and I saw the smoke, the little bit of smoke, and I was like, that's weird. And there was a camera shop on the corner. And I'd gotten this digital camera recently, and I was getting really into it. But I had an old regular analog camera as well. And so I kind of knew the owner, and the owner was standing outside looking as well. And um, we're talking, and everybody's under the assumption it's a tiny, like it's a Cessna. Like it's a tiny plane that for whatever reason just went wildly off course and just accidentally struck it. And one of the reasons we think this is because that first plane hits really high between the 93rd and the 99th floor. So very high, almost the very top of a 110-story building that this thing hits. So we assume it's a complete accident. We're standing there just after 9 a.m., the second plane hits, and it hits the South Tower. Which we did you see really, it hit? We saw the plane and then we saw the kind of flash, but the way we are, the where we sit, the towers like occlude each other, and it just looks like they're one there's one tower. Um then we're like, oh shit. Like this wasn't an accident. And it was people people didn't panic, but people we're like, what do we do? Um, so I tried to call Rick at that point and couldn't get through because the cell phone lines were just jammed. And so I went back inside and tried to use the land phone. And eventually I got Rick and told him, I'm fine. I'm at the house. I'm not down there. And he was like, what's happening? The news is really unclear what's going on. And I was like, honestly, I don't know. Like." The plane, the second, I said, the second plane that hit looked pretty big. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, it looked like a passenger plane. And so I turned the news on and we're kind of getting conflicting reports. And I go back outside. And by this point, a lot of people are kind of gathered just looking because what do we do? And slowly people start to filter up into our neighborhood. Because they pretty quickly closed the ferries. Um, and underneath the World Trade Center, uh, the New Jersey Path, which is the kind of the subway from New Jersey, comes in. And they closed that subway lot service down there had been suspended. And people are kind of trying to get out of the area and they're coming up. And less than an hour later, um, WTC2 collapses. And a few minutes after that, uh, I guess it was maybe half hour, um, the North Tower collapsed as well. And at this point, I think I and a lot of my neighbors, we went into shock. We didn't really know. We weren't even really aware the Pentagon had been hit. 
Was it really noisy? Do you remember noises? I remember noise when the second plane hit. When the towers collapsed, there was some noise, but it wasn't as noisy as I thought it would be. Um, all I remember was the smoke, and for a while you couldn't see anything. Um, when the did you know tower- that the tower had collapsed? I'm sorry. Did you realize that that is what had happened when all the smoke came? Or did you think that something else had been hit? Or like, what was your line no, of thought? No, we, we were... So the funny thing is for that almost hour where both towers were still up after they got hit, we're all, we all suddenly became engineering experts and decided there was no way these towers were going to come down that they the way they were designed. Um, because we didn't know about the flights or anything. Turns out both of these flights were transcontinental flights. They were cross country flights um, and they were fully loaded with fuel. So the conspirators knew what they were doing. They knew what flights to pick. That's what's interesting, right? All of these flights were taken from uh, the East Coast, and they were all bound for California. So they specifically selected these flights that were going to be loaded up with as much fuel. And they knew all of these flights on a Tuesday morning were very very lightly traveled routes. And so back in the day, you used to be able to get on airplanes and you would oftentimes find yourself with very few other people on a flight. Airlines didn't pack flights the way they do now um, because they had to move planes across the country and they had to kind of remain, maintain these slots. So it was very interesting that they picked these flights, but we were shocked when the first one collapsed. But then the, the moment that first one collapsed, which is the second one hit, and that one got hit much lower down, almost the midsection, just above the midsection of the tower, which is evidently where they were trying to aim the first plane as well, but they couldn't. Um, after that first tower got hit, we were pretty much resigned the second tower was coming down. And then we started discussing the people where they were there. And we were like, well, how many people were there? And I had worked there and I kind of knew um, that theoretically there could be 10 to 20,000 people in the towers and the complex around it at any one time. Um, and after the second tower collapsed, I got a call from a friend of mine and her husband had worked with me at Goldman Sachs. Um, and he still worked down in lower Manhattan and she was like, have you heard from him? And I was like, no. And she's like, I don't know where he is. So he would have been arriving at New Jersey Path about 30 minutes before the first plane hit. And for a while, we didn't know where he was. And I told her, I said, look, if I hear from him, and at this point, once the second tower collapsed, Um, all the bridges got closed, no transit out of the city. Basically, if you were in Manhattan, unless you were going to walk across one of the bridges and the Brooklyn bridge was really the only one you could walk across, you were trapped in the city. You weren't going anywhere. Wasn't there an evacuation of lower Manhattan though? Didn't the mayor order an evacuation? Yeah. Yeah. There was, so people had already started to kind of evacuate, um, before Harvey's going to bark a little bit. Um, the mayor had kind of, uh, yes, 
there, there was a general evacuation of lower Manhattan even before the towers collapsed because they needed to get kind of fire and rescue down there. Once the towers collapsed, they offer, they ordered an, a general evacuation of all of lower Manhattan. So then we started to get a lot of people. And I think um, Susan assumed that her husband, Greg, knew where I lived and knew we lived in mid kind of lower mid Manhattan. Chelsea is where we lived. I think she assumed he would make his way there if he couldn't get anywhere. The problem was cell phone service became almost unusable because the main cell phone tower was on the World Trade Center. So cell phones became very sketchy to use at that point. And eventually I did hear from Greg and he had made his way. Um, he was on the last path train that was supposed to come into the station and was stopped after the plane, the second plane hit and they evacuated him and he was able to get out on a ferry and kind of made his way home um, before those services stopped. But, and this is what I don't think people who weren't there that day don't, they, they fail to understand from the moment that second plane hit for the rest of that day and into the night and for the next two or three days, I think most of us in New York thought we were going to die. Um, what did you think was coming? I think, and this is, I've had a conversation with my buddy, Dan, who lived in New York as well. I think we all assumed that the reason these towers had been targeted was to draw cameras onto New York city. And then they were going to detonate a small nuclear weapon in the city. Oh my God. That's because scary. this has been kind of the nightmare scenario since the collapse of the Soviet Union was that there was theoretically unaccounted for nukes that were out there, especially suitcase nukes. So what does that mean? Um, and we were waiting. And it's and this is, again, I think something people who weren't there don't understand. I mean, for two or three days, we felt we could die at any moment. Um most of us were separated from our families, so Rick was trapped in Princeton. There was no way for him to get back in the city. Um, many people I knew were trapped various places. Um, yeah. It was messed up. I didn't realize that you all had the idea or thought that, you know, maybe there would be an, an additional attack. I mean, I knew that we were all expecting additional attacks, but I think the way we were talking about it, I was experiences from the West coast. And again, I wasn't an adult, but I remember I could hear my parents talking about like, well, we live near a Navy base, right? Like that could be a target. You know, we live near this or that, that could be a target, right? Like there could be targets all around the country that aren't just New York. And so I mean, I think that that's like kind of like the egocentricism of everybody like we're next, you know, like everybody thinks that they're going to be the next target. But um, there was a lot. I remember there was a lot of talk about like, is this going to continue or are there going to be additional attacks? And and the main reason for that, though, I think is important to say is like there were other attacks. Um, you know, the, there were four planes that were hijacked. Two of them ended up in New York City. One hit the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and the other was bound for the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and was taken down by 
passengers in the plane who had heard what was happening and they fought back against um, the hijackers and they took the plane down in, you know, like middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania kind of. Um, and all of the people on board perished, including the hijackers. But that plane was bound for an, another major target, which was the U.S. Capitol. So we did, we, we were, you know, as the news was unfolding and we were trying to figure out what was going on, it was clear that there were multiple um, attackers and that there were multiple planes that had been hijacked. And air traffic control was really trying to get a handle on like, well, what planes are down? What planes are up? What mm -hmm. do we have going on? And so we were all, it wasn't just New York city that was attacked. Right. So I think that that's what expanded this worry is like, well, what's next? Well, so there was, so once the towers were down and there was this general evacuation, a lot of us kind of moved indoors because this kind of cloud started to spread. And, you know, at this point kind of became engrossed in CNN as everybody else around the country already was. And I just remember at one point, so this is where I blame the media. First, they all just went overboard. And the stuff they were saying was just, you're not helping the situation. So at one point, I'm the, I remember them saying, we have 20 planes in the air right now over the continental US, and we're not really sure the status of any of them. And I was like, great. So now Thanks people so are much gonna, for the panic. Yeah. Yeah. So now people are going to panic. And, and here's the thing. Um, the targets were symbolic, right? I mean, the World Trade Center, center of capitalism, Pentagon, center of American military might, and the U.S. Capitol building, center of American political might. Very symbolic targets. Um, but everybody in every city and town and burg started imagining whatever was in their town was the obvious next target, which was just ridiculous. Like, I'm not even sure these guys knew where Omaha was much less what they would right. target there. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, there's this period of unknown thing. And again, remember that night, most of us in New York were assuming well over 10,000 people had died when those towers collapsed. Um, you know, and there was no easy way for families to get in contact with one another. Um, I remember later Rick commenting there were dozens of cars in the parking lot for New Jersey Transit at Princeton. So these are people who had been commuting from Princeton into the city. And many of these people worked in lower Manhattan. Many of them worked at Cantor Fitzgerald, um, which was a firm that was in the World Trade Center and one World Trade Center. Um, very tall. It was, so it's an investment bank. Um, I actually had friends who worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, very close to the impact zone. Um, and he said those cars were never reclaimed. So we thought we were going to die that night. So I remember, I remember what I did that night. So it was about 8 PM and I finally got through to Rick again and he was just confirming. He's like, you're okay. I was like, I'm fine. And he's like, oh, you need to get out of the city. And I said, well, that's just not an option. Like, we can't. Like, there's the only thing I could do is go to Brooklyn, walk to Brooklyn, and then what? Like, and he said, well, just be safe. Because I think even he thought this was it. And checked on my buddy Dan. He checked on, like, people started to check on one another. And we kind of started reaching out. 
and this is where you started to realize, see the gaps in your social circle. You're like, Oof, I just hope it's a fact we can't contact one another. But it came, I mean, it was so traumatic. Um, and I had been, I worked out five days a week prior to 9-11. <laughs> um, the great thing about working in investment banks, they usually have really good benefit packages. And one of them was like gym membership to a really good gym. And I went, I would go like every day during the week. And some days I would go in the morning and I would go in the evening. Um, and um, I would take a break during work to go. And that night I went to the corners bodega, the little store on the corner of our street. And I bought a pack of double stuff Oreos and a carton of whole milk. And I was like, F this, if I'm going to get blown up, I'm going to be happy. Um, because we didn't know. Like, and so New Yorkers did really come together. And my bank that I worked for at that point was really good. They called, they checked on everybody that evening. They were like, we're just checking on you. Because they knew. I mean, it's the investment banking industry in New York is very incestuous. You basically bounce around between banks. Once you're in the system, you don't leave it. And they knew many of us kind of had contacts there. And they were like, look, we're not, we're going to be closed for several weeks at least. It's paid. You're not having to take vacation. Take care of yourselves. Check in with us periodically. And we'll keep you updated. And then the stock market tanked. And then the stock market tanked. But the good thing was, is it was something I didn't have to worry about, right? My job was like set aside. I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about, oh, I got to go to work tonight or I got to go work tomorrow. Um, there was a little humanity there, which I was happy for. Um, and two nights later, uh, Rick still wasn't back in the city. I think it was his third. The third night was when he was finally able to get back in the city. Two nights later, my buddy Dan came down. He lived on the west side. He came down and we had dinner somewhere. And I remember um, it was close to me. It wasn't down towards lower Manhattan at all. Um, but we just needed to get out and do something. Um and so show some kind of resilience, like we're not going to be bullied. Because at this point, we know exactly who it is. Al-Qaeda had kind of assumed responsibility for it. We knew a lot about the people and all of these things. Um, we're at this restaurant and we were eating outside. And suddenly, like this throng of people come running up the street, screaming, it's another bomb, it's another bomb. And everybody freaked out. And this was basically what the city was like for a while. Um, anytime anything kind of out of the ordinary would be spotted, people would panic and assume this is what was going on. And, um, New York was never the same after September 11th. It changed fundamentally. Um, and I remember a few weeks later when I finally went back to work, um, first I remember going to work, um, I went over and got on the bus to go. It was no more than 20 blocks to get, I was thinking, yeah, it was 20 blocks to get to work. Um, 
and I got on the bus and, and I looking back on it, this was so wrong of me, but I understand why I did it. So I get on the bus and I sit down and it's a bus I had taken before. So it wasn't like an unknown quantity. I don't know why I didn't take the subway, but I decided to take the bus. I think I was paranoid of being trapped down in the subway if something happened. So I'm on the bus and this Arabic guy got on the bus and I could tell every other person on the bus, like tensed up, like, Oh, Oh crap. What's going to happen? Um, and I, my heart started racing. I started sweating the very next stop. I got off cause I was so like, he's going to blow us up obviously. And I kind of had a discussion with myself after that, got off the bus and like, was like, you need to get it together. That guy was just going to work or coming home from work like anybody else. Like the, he was no more a terrorist than you are. What is wrong with you? At the same time, I understand why I did it. I understand exactly what was going through my head at the time. Um, but it's funny that day I got to work and f- it was funny. It'd been two weeks, but our whole first week back was basically us just hugging one another and like they brought psychologists and psychiatrists in to help. And we had round table discussions and all this stuff. And like, um, because it was like citywide trauma. Well, I think it's important that you brought that up, that visceral reaction you had to seeing somebody, because think of how fundamentally people in this country's lives have changed who were from the Middle East, who were Arabic, who were from these regions. Like, their lives shifted so much overnight when they had nothing to do with it. And they were ostracized and they were, um, you know, scapegoated for so long um, and still are in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, at Trump rallies, you would see, he was talking about how like, oh, there were people partying on 9-11 or something. Right? Like, that's a myth. Which there's was no, not true. No, there's so no proof liberty, of that whatsoever. Right. And so that's just one of the things that happens, I think, to so many Americans. They become ostracized and scapegoated overnight and feared. So there were a couple of big enclaves of Arab immigrants living in places like New Jersey. And there were no celebrations there. There was a lot of fear. First, there was anger and angst because they're New Yorkers, too. And but then there was fear. And a lot of us started to kind of realize those groups are going to probably be targeted by people because they want to lash out at somebody. And if somebody's wearing traditional dress, they're going to be a pretty easy target. So a lot of people I know of who were lived in those communities, they said for at least a year afterwards, they stopped wearing things that identified them readily <coughs> as, as Arabic. Um, and many of them, we had an actual friend, he was from Oman, I think was the, I'm pretty sure it was Oman. Um, he said for years afterwards, when people would ask him where he was from, he would say Puerto Rico. Because he just didn't want to have to deal with that September 11th thing, right? Yeah, and, it's really awful. Um, But something people always ask me, and this is another thing that I think you had to be there to experience. 
Um, so it makes this huge toxic cloud um, of asbestos and construction material and concrete dust and all this other stuff, which spreads across most of Manhattan, at least the bottom half of Manhattan. Um, but then there's a smell that starts. And the initial smell is like this metallic y smell, and you see jet fuel burning and all these smells. But then there's this other smell. About five days afterwards, there starts to be this other smell. Um, we now know that other smell is corpses. Um, and we start, and this is why I said that we thought 10,000 people could have died. It is a, a relief, and this sounds so cruel to say this, it's a relief when we find out only 2,200 people about had died. Because that's a in fifth New York. Of, in New York. Because it's a fifth of the number we thought had died. Um, now, that's, I mean, it was still awful. It was tragic. And it was this huge loss of life. But, I mean, we could have lost 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50,000 people in that attack. And I think that's definitely what the terrorists wanted. They were aiming for that, yeah. They wanted that. I mean, they planned them as post 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., regular workday. The problem is they didn't do their homework quite enough because for many students, it was for many school children in New York, it was their first day of school. So like the head of Cantor Fitzgerald was taking his daughter to the first day of school. It was primary election day. So people were out kind of voting. It was a nice, pretty day, still kind of late summer. Some people had taken vacation because they wanted to kind of make summer last. Um, <clears throat> all of these things meant there weren't nearly as many people in those towers as there could have been. Um, but that smell, I mean, I will never forget that smell. It, um, it is a haunting smell. It's interesting that you say smell because I was thinking the sound would have been what was the most, but uh, the, yeah, the that sound makes sense was, though. I didn't even think about well, that. Well, I mean, Hollywood had trained me that the sound should have been a lot bigger. So it was a little like I thought there would have been like yelling or crying or screaming or booms, you know, collapse. I, I don't know. I, that's how I always pictured it as being just this very loud moment. But you're right. That's what Hollywood prepped me for. Yeah. So it's interesting. And, well, and it's fortunately I was far enough away on 28th Street that I could not see people jumping. Uh, some of my God. colleagues, some of my colleagues were not so fortunate. They actually saw things like that. Um, and I am thankful to this day that that is something I did not have like indelibly pressed on my brain. Um, but so what do we do with this as historians? <laughs> like what? I mean, <sighs> Well, I think it's hard, especially for you, because you have a personal experience there. So teaching about it is 
always going to be very challenging, particularly when you're confronted with the students with the conspiracy theories, because I've had that happen in my classes too, where they're like, well, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, blah, blah, blah. And like, I'm more able to objectively approach it mm-hmm. because I wasn't there and I was not old enough for it to be, I think as impactful as it, as it was for many people who were in their adulthood. Um, and, and even though, I mean, even saying that though, it's still, it's still not objective because I do remember it happening, but I think it's really, really hard for you to objectively approach this topic because you were involved in the situation, right? I mean, so it's always going to be difficult for you to teach about it if you have to teach about it. I think as from like a teaching standpoint, I think it's important not necessarily to know like how it felt or what it looked like or what it smelled like there. Although those are all really, really important, like firsthand accounts of things. It's like geopolitically, what does this mean for the, for the world, for, you know, international relations, for the way that we move forward, the way that the world changes in an instant. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything shifts after that. And I think talking about it in that context, giving the context of the nineties where like we were kind of in this lulled into this false sense of security and like kind of ignoring some problems that were actually happening that we just decided we didn't want to. And then this smacks us in the face and it's like, no, yeah. you actually are very much going to be involved in this mess. And so I think teaching students in that way to be like, look, you may not have been born, but your whole life has been impacted by this event. Yeah. The Patriot Act, the way that you get on and off an airplane, um, the way we travel, the war that we were in for 20 solid years. We just got out of Afghanistan. I think we need to talk about that. I mean, that was a huge, something huge to happen over the summer, but we end up entangled in a war that's the longest war in U.S. history as a result of these attacks. And what does that mean for the generation? You know, I had friends, you know, I was in high school when we were invaded Iraq. I have friends who graduated and went off to war. Um, I have friends who were in it for so long. They were in and they retired. You know, I mean, it, we were in this war for a really, really long time. And it completely shaped, I think, you know, even though we weren't impacted by it day to day, I think it very much shaped our lives for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So to talk about it in that way is important that that, that this is the moment where that started. It's, it's, it's a moment. So it, 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 the funny thing is, is Y2K had happened a year before the September 11th attacks and Y2K didn't, wasn't kind of the apocalyptic moment. Everybody thought it was going to be, everybody thought all these computers would stop functioning because of the dates and all of this stuff. And, and that didn't really happen the way people thought it was going to happen. Um, so the new millennium didn't really feel like a new millennium, but I think September 11th, things changed. There's pre-September 11th and there's post-September 11th. Um, and the war thing is an interesting thing. Americans are overwhelmingly in favor of going into Afghanistan after September 11th. This is where Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are based. We well, also had the highest approval ratings for a president in U.S. history. I hated, and I hated W. 
well, I didn't hate him. I didn't like W, but we all rallied around him. There was a 90% approval rating because in the days we, following 9-11. And so Americans were overwhelmingly in support of military action in Afghanistan. Now, a few years later, when that gets expanded to Iraq, that's where fractures start to appear. Because Iraq has nothing to do with September 11th at all. And in fact, if you want to prevent things from September, like September 11th happening, having somebody like Saddam Hussein as a totalitarian dictator is a good thing in places like that. True? I mean... It's like the evil you know versus the one you don't know, I guess. Well, I mean, the immediate, immediate. Now, long term, we know that these kind of totalitarian regimes kind of beget more problems than they kind of prevent. But the idea is you have kind of a totalitarian ruler who can monitor things like that and put those things down. I mean, if something like that had sprung up in Iraq under Saddam Hussein's watch, he would have quashed it because he can't afford a war like that with the United States. Whereas right, these because kind of- you could have like these economic sanctions and there could be a lot of fallout for that because of like a true participation in the geopolitical structure. Whereas these terrorist organizations, like they don't, it doesn't matter to them. You can sanction them all you want. They're not right. a part of the global economy necessarily. So yeah, having someone who's a bad, awful dictator, at least he's somewhat playing the game. Whereas Al-Qaeda that they're just not even a part of that structure. There's no, mm-hmm. they're playing outside the, the bounds of traditional um, international politics, right? Like you, you can't really do the, the traditional things to them, mm-hmm. the punishments. Yeah. And, you know, another odd thing starts, comes out of this and it's something we're still kind of in the throes of, although I see it kind of changing a little bit. There's this resurgence of performative patriotism. American flags go up everywhere. And what's interesting is in New York, it's there, but it's not as present as it is other other parts of the country. And New Yorkers, I think we were really kind of uncomfortable with it. And we're like, this is our response. Like put up a flag that doesn't bring anybody back. Like, why are you doing that? And and for those of us who had kind of an interest in history and were paying attention, then we were like, well, I mean, this isn't to say the United States deserves anything like this happening, but I understand why it happened. And I understand the logic the people who did it employed. I think their logic's flawed, but I understand how they came to this decision to do this. And it wasn't random. The United States has a lengthy history of interfering in Middle Eastern politics. Oh, yeah. I mean, going way, way back. Um, And, you know, then there's something to be said about Bush 1, Bush 2. That kind of stuff. I mean, that's a whole other topic, I guess. But I like what you mentioned about this performative patriotism that, that comes out of this. And... And I think it's like the real, I think we are still very much dealing with it right now. Um, You don't think it's, you don't think it's become a little more bifurcated now? Like, I think there's an assumption now, if you're flying an American flag, 
there are assumptions about you that 10 years ago there weren't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I've heard people say like it's almost like a symbol of hate at this point. And that makes mm-hmm. me really sad. That's awful. Yeah. But I've heard people say that where like if you're driving your big giant truck down the highway and there's an American flag waving out of the back of it, like that person may not be friendly toward you if mm-hmm. anyway I, I don't know i mean i think that i think it kind of sprouts up at this time i did find it to be an interesting reaction to what happened it and it was a good thing i think because we're so divided right now i don't know if, i don't know what would need to happen for us to come together in the way that we came together i thought, after the, pan- I thought the i thought the pandemic would bring us together the pandemic has not brought us together <laughs> It has divided us worse than anything. I mean, I remember, you know, in the day, the day of 9-11 and the days after, I mean, people were just passing each other, looking just in a haze. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone looked so sad and so helpless. And you could, I remember very clearly people with tears in their eyes. I remember my mom crying. I mean, you know, I mean, I do remember that. And there was something that happened that like struck me even at that age of like, wow, this is, this is earth shattering. Mm-hmm. And New York I, became a friendlier place for a little while. It was, oh, well, that's nice. There wasn't as much yelling at the sandwich shops. Well, I mean, people were more civil to one another. On more civil. Yeah. I mean, so that it was kind of a good thing, right? I don't know if there's something that could do that at this moment. I mean, I think we're just so far we're so far gone in terms of being civil to one another at this point. Um, so the bank I worked at when this happened, so I worked on the 47th floor, 47 or 48. It's funny that I can't remember that number now. <clears throat> I never felt comfortable working <laughs> that floor ever again. Um, and in fact, we left New York two years later. We left New York in 2003. And a lot of it was like, first, it just felt like the heart of the city had been ripped out. Second, I never felt completely comfortable again. Um, and I remember um, we flew out to Bermuda in November. And it was the first time we were on a plane since it had happened. And we got on the plane, and it was kind of an odd um, day in New York. It was a little warm, and the humidity was up. So the vents in the airplane, it was like mist coming out. And this guy in front of us, who was kind of this big, very stereotypical Brooklyn gonzo, started like screaming and panicking, fire, fire, there's smoke here, there's smoke here. And the stewardess had to come back and be like, that's not what's going on at all. That's that's not the situation at all. Um, but I, we decided we just had to leave um, because it was no longer the city we loved. And not seeing those towers was a daily reminder of it. And um, I have to say also, as far as commemorating it in the city itself, most of my friends in New York we were all very much proponents of rebuilding it to look exactly how it is, as it had looked. We did not want to change in the design. We didn't, you know, we felt the best thing we could do was rebuild it back, learn from kind of the, the collapse, 
how to fix that problem, but rebuild it to look the same. I remember feeling that way. Like I thought that would have been the biggest like F you. It's like, well, yeah. just build it again. But it also in a way feels kind of disrespectful. You know, That's I could see true. both sides of it. Where it's That's like, oh, we're just going to move right on and we're just going to build new towers, right? Like I could see both sides of that argument. So I have not been back to New York since we left in 2003. Except Are you to serious? Go, You've not been back? Except, except to go through the airport. I've not. Really? I, it, it is, it's painful. It's like, I don't, fortunately, when we had to fly through there and change flights, it was at night and, and I think it was cloudy. So I didn't have to see lower Manhattan. I don't know how I would respond 20 years on to that because it is, it, it is a sign of the dozens of people Rick and I knew who never came home that day. Um, and it's a sign of just the city fundamentally changing. And I think in a not good way. Um, yeah. It's. So it's important, I think, for students to know, you know, the context and everything that happened. And I mean, I don't even. So when I was thinking about doing this episode, like we could have done like a play by play of like at the time this happened and this time that happened. Like, I don't really know how important all of those details are to an event. And that's what I'm kind of stepping back and thinking about the way I would teach something that happened a hundred years ago. I wouldn't necessarily teach in that way. Mm-hmm. Even though when you look up anything about like, well, what happened on nine 11, it tends to be like a minute by minute report of what went on. And that's just not really the way that we teach about things. We teach about things in a broader context, like what is, what led up to this, what happened, and then what was the fallout or the impact. And I think, you know, we're 20 years out, but I I still think we're still too close. And especially for you to really like zoom out and say, why is this important? I mean, we know it's important, but we're going to analyze this day so differently 50 years from now than we do right now. Oh, I definitely, I think so. I mean, it's, so those play by play accounts. um, One of the reasons I really detest them is they are devoid of any humanity. Um, There's not a mention of specific people. Um, you know, it's, and these are people who died, right? Think of how we teach about the civil war, you know, like I we don't, don't go in and talk about like, well, then this person, you know, did this or that. Like, I mean, we I was don't really talk about events in that way. I was having a conversation with my doctor this morning. He was asking me about classes this fall and something. And he said something about the COVID death number right now, which we're sitting at about 650,000 today, I think. Mm-hmm. And I said, we're inching up to civil war territory. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, I think we're it's getting more at this point. Cause there's some estimates that say 600. Well, then we are, then we've we're passed on, it. We've passed it. And he was like that many people died in the civil war. And I was like, yeah, like a lot of people died in the U S civil war. Um, because all deaths were American deaths. Right. I mean, that's. R- well, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the, that's like, it was like, it wasn't just one side or American deaths, both sides were. So it ends up the numbers right. are so much more than world war one, world war two, mm-hmm. Vietnam, et cetera. And we're also inching toward 
uh, Spanish flu numbers, yep. which took sure. course over many years. We're a year yep. and a half into this, and we're really inching pretty close to those numbers too. So, but I mean, it's it, it, these. This is one thing I don't like when historians talk about these catastrophic events. There's a there's a dehumanization a lot of times that takes place, and you put a statistic there, but you don't have like the experiences and stuff. And I'll, I'll go back to a book we've talked about before. Stephanie Smallwood's small, Saltwater Slavery. I think mm-hmm. one of the things she does is try to put a face on the numbers. Of- well, and that's why it's so important to find primary sources, which <clears throat> I always mm-hmm. do in all of my classes. Or like when I talk about, you know, the Great Depression, I assign the Hard Times book, right? When mm-hmm. I talk about 18th century medicine, I assign Martha Ballard's diary, right? Like those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It is so important to put a face on it. But most of the time when we're talking about a major event, like, a, you know, in this case, a terrorist attack, or if we're talking about Pearl Harbor, we're talking about the circumstances that surrounded that event taking place rather than mm. trying to, like, flesh out individuals who were involved. I think that's what ends up happening. So one of the things that sticks out to me, even to this day, um, just before the attacks, so there's a mall underneath the World Trade Center, um, concourse, this concourse. And one of the things that had just opened not too, not too long before the attacks, there was a Krispy Kreme donut place that opened. Um, and it was only our second Krispy Kreme in New York City. And it was great because it's very different from New York style donuts. And like, um, and it was just there and then it was gone. And and I know it seems so superficial to focus on something like that, but I think that's the way the human brain functions is you have to like pick something little. And I think for me, it's a lesson for how I approach primary sources about other events is I understand, particularly if it's a traumatic event, um, that the person writing or whatever might not be able to write everything they're feeling or experiencing. So you do have to do some triangulation and be like, well, look, they're not going to talk about this because that's the thing that's like fresh in their head right now. They're going to talk about this other thing. Um, I will say this. I dread tomorrow. Um, I've avoided news and stuff the last few days because the clips of the towers collapsing and the clips of the second plane impact of the tower. Those are things I don't need to see ever again. I don't want to see those. I wish they would start putting warnings up before they show those clips. Do you think it's important for students to see those? I think for people who've never experienced it. Yes. Um, Is it appropriate to show it to children? How young? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just generally because I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's because they have questions, you know, like the kids came home and said, well, we're learning about 9-11. What are you learning about it? And they read this little book and it's such a sweet little book. I don't know if you've read it. Probably not reading children's books, but it's like um, it's about a fireboat that had been out of commission for many years. And then like somebody kind of took up this fireboat as a hobby and then the fireboat ended up helping put out fires during and after 
in the aftermath. It was a very sweet children's book, but it really, really, really dialed down like what actually was happening. But I think it was age appropriate, you know? So, right. I mean, I think it's important. I, I would argue that it's very important for people to see it. N- not you necessarily, you were there, but like the kids who don't know anything about it, I think that those images are so important because Mm -hmm. it really dials in on this is what happened. This is why everybody's upset. This is why this was traumatic. Um, I mean, I I think that kids need to see it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, I think there's, I think there's an age where you kind of gradually introduce the thing. And and a lot of it has to do with the same conversation we have about like slavery in the United States. Like if I'm teaching elementary school students about slavery, I'm not going to immediately go to the photos of torture that was done on slaves to show them the kind of violent dehumanization that's part of the process. See, I'm not going to go to that immediately. Because there were children who endured slavery and to to sugarcoat it or whitewash it or make it a palatable to the kids first off i think that it i, mean, I know what about- you're saying but at the same time just like you need to know like why everyone's so pissed about this it's it's a serious situation you know i, I don't mean think- are we going to talk about the 20 something year old receptionist who jumps out of the world trade center but holds her skirt down so so it doesn't fry up this this final moment of of dignity. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't I know mean, if it's important to talk I've, specifically. You're going to have to talk for a minute because I, I need a moment here to collect myself. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think that, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily good to go into all those specific details just for the sake of traumatizing. Because I also think that there's a, there's a line when we discuss history, when we teach history where you have to dial back and not be sadistic about it in a way. Like I, that's how I felt about 12 years of slave. When I watched it, it felt very uncomfortable. The amount that, and, and I felt the same way when I watched like the passion of the Christ where I'm like, this is just taking it to a level of like extremity that to me seems inappropriate. I don't know. Like it, it's almost like, um, I don't know. I, I think I would call it like torture porn or something along those lines. It's right? gratu- it's it feels gratuitous. gratuitous. Um, and so I think that, you know, you don't want to take it to that level, but I also think it's important to relay the gravity of a situation. So that way students, they're not blindsided by it. Cause so many times when they get into college classes, and then you do talk about like the just the true brutality of what happens at many different historical events. They are blindsided by it. And right. they've gone through life with this privilege of not having to know about it. That to me well, is like you're doing them a disservice because they march through life with all this privilege. Well, I don't have to worry about that. Well, no, you, you, knew, you need to think about it from early on, I think. So I, I would say this, for very young children, I think a way to approach it that would be useful, and it wouldn't whitewash kind of the deaths and the suffering, um, 
show clips or show photos from those candlelight vigils or the boards where people would set up and put all the pictures of their missing loved ones or the, the poles all around the city that had just hundreds of photos taped on them. If you, you know, Joe, if you see this, please call us. We're trying to figure out where you are. If you've seen this man, could you please call this number? He worked blah, 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 at the windows in the world restaurant. Um, that I think is a much more, I think it, it is a respectful way to kind of talk about the the loss of life that day and to move it away. I mean, this is, I'm very much, I don't like to mention the specific names of the perpetrators for the attack. The 93 attack, I'm okay with doing it because it was a failed attack. And I think it's important you understand the connections. The actual people who do this one, though, I, I really am very much the same school as the mass shooter thing of not publicizing the name, not giving them notoriety. Um, I mean, these are monsters, right? Anybody who hijacks a plane to crash into a building is a monster, period. You start. Um, and this, and, and granted, I mean, we've ignored what happens at the Pentagon. We've ignored what happens at that field in Pennsylvania. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be on flight 93. Right. Yeah. Um, That one, I mean, just, you know, hearing people's voicemails from the flight, calling their loved ones, mm -hmm. those transcripts, like it's devastating because they knew Mm -hmm. what was going on at that point. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so, and this is the thing you want to talk about heroes. Those are heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, these are people who understand what they're giving up to stop this. Well, they know that they're going to save lives. They know it's not their life, but they're saving. They're saving lives. Thousands this is, of others. <laughs> this is why you should get vaccinated. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Those people on Flight 93 storm the cockpit to retake control of that plane, knowing they are going to die in the process, but they're going to prevent other lives. And have no idea how to fly a plane, right? Right. And you can't get a freaking shot in your arm to help prevent the continuance of this pandemic. Like you, I, I, if you will not get a shot for the, for COVID and you are not kind of immune compromised or some other reason why you can't have it, you cannot call yourself a patriot. Period. You're did not. you know? Did you know that the virus is now targeting people who are unvaccinated, Jeff? Yes, I've seen that, and the <laughs> idiocy that's portrayed by that—it's like that's what a vaccine's supposed to do. <laughs> um, but it's just—I mean, this is this gets back to kind of the aftermath of nine eleven and people. This kind of performative patriotism, right? It's like, oh, we're patriots. We're and for years afterwards, I remember we went to Tucson, which is where we moved right after. New York and our real estate agents there were showing us stuff. And one of them was like, yeah, I, we had a tough time here in Tucson too, after nine 11 with blah, blah, blah. I was like, give me a freaking break. Really? You did. I mean, I think people were collectively very upset by it. I think that is fair to say, but But I don't think we need to like, (laughs) yeah. It's like, but you know, it's, 
I think I hoped for something good to come out of the experience for the United States. It didn't. Basically, what came out of it was 20 years of vendetta. Right. Well, and and 20 years of incredible radicalization of this group, this mm-hmm. fall patriot group. And it's interesting with Rudy Giuliani, we don't really talk about him that much, but had he just disappeared after 9-11 happened, just retired and gone off, he would have been a hero forever. People loved yeah. him in the yeah. aftermath. Yeah. And now he's got... You know, hair dyed. Well, and Giuliani really, 9 11 reformed his opinion for his image for many New Yorkers because he had, he had been tough on crime, which is good in the city, but he'd also started. So Chris Rock had this famous piece where he said, really, Giuliani is kind of like a pit bull. Like, as long as there's trouble, he's nice to have around, but if there's no trouble, he'll eat the children. And basically, what he did was the Brooklyn museum was doing this exhibit, this kind of controversial exhibit, and he didn't have anything else really he needed to take care of. So he got involved in that and, and wanted to cut the Brooklyn museum's funding because of it. And it's like, and New Yorkers are like, no, you can do whatever you want in some things, but don't touch our art and culture stuff. You're not allowed to to dictate that. But nine 11 really gets him back as kind of this, this popular figure in New York. Um, yeah, if he had retired post 9-11 from public life, he would have been remembered as a hero who kept it together as opposed to somebody who shaves at a table in an airport. Oh my gosh, I saw that. That was so weird. Um, Doing press conferences out of the Four Seasons landscaping with hair dye dripping down his face. It's a mess. The whole thing's a mess. But we're an hour and a half in now. I think we gotta gotta wrap it up. Yep. Yep. I think it's, this is a little therapeutic for me. Good. <laughs> um, you know, maybe that's, that's as good as I can hope. Uh, but I mean, this is a question historians deal with all the time is what do you deal with more recent events? Uh, very few events kind of, I think, rise to the scale of 9-11 for us as a country collectively in the last few of the last half century. Um, I think Vietnam, the assassinations in the sixties and the world war two are probably the only other candidates over the last hundred years for similarly traumatic events. But, um, it's a work in progress, right? I mean, it's, uh, I will be curious in the last years of my life to see how nine 11 is talked about. Um, me too. To see what's left out. Yeah. To see what's left out, to see what's kind of focused on that. Maybe we didn't even talk about today. Um, I think it's going to be taught as a unit when we talk about the war in Afghanistan, because we've now bookended that. And I think that there'll be a starting point and an ending point in like a U.S. survey class to talk about, the, the war in Afghanistan. I suppose I, that worries me because I think you're going to move to even further dehumanization of the victims of nine 11. And I think you're going to move towards possibly well, think, a situation. Can you name victims of Pearl Harbor? Well, give me a minute and I can. You know what I'm saying? 
Like, can the average American who's gone through primary school, maybe even college, can they sit around and list individuals who were killed at Pearl Harbor? Because a lot of times Pearl Harbor and 9-11 are, are compared. Right. Which I think is wrong. I don't, as, yeah, I don't think it's right. Well, here's but the thing. I think that so that's the, typically how we deal with these situations. Right. But I mean, here's the, the fundamental difference I think is this, is um, the receptionist, the delivery guy, the kitchen staff, these people who die in the towers on 9-11 are civilians. They have not enlisted in the U.S. military. They are not, whereas the sailors on board, even the Arizona, in on December 7th, 1941, they are in the military. There is an inherent risk with what they're doing. And the United States is, is in a very precarious position with Japan at that point. Yeah, Both countries. Yeah, I, I know that, that there's a huge difference between an attack on civilians and an attack on the military. However, I think that we don't tend to approach that discussion from an individual perspective of like, this person, you know, was a sailor on this boat and he came from this family and he did, we just don't do that. And I don't, I don't think that's right, but I just, I'm saying, I think that that's just how it ends up playing out. And I think when you're really close to a situation, you're like, well, that's not right. That shouldn't be the way it is. Well, no, but a lot of times when you're trying to consider and think of like a survey class, how much time are you going to spend talking about one day? even though that one day profoundly changed your life to these kids who weren't even alive yet, it didn't. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, to go into really, really, you know, extreme detail to it, pedagogically speaking may not be the most important thing to do. Or maybe it is. And you show that there is kind of this granular approach that you should maybe do sometimes that, that this, particularly when you have a rich source of primary sources um, and you can kind of That is true. There's a lot the, of rich sources here because after, during the nine 11 commission, they, they recorded how many oral interviews, thousands, mm-hmm. thousands yeah. of oral interviews. So you could do something like a hard times kind of a piece here where you're like, go and listen to five oral histories of nine 11 and get mm-hmm. down into the granular. You could, you absolutely could do that. I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical, but considering like a hundred years from now in a history of U.S. survey, I don't know that this would be as watershed of a moment to mm. to, to, spend, to sit and focus on for like an extensive period of time. Right. I could see it being a class session. Sure. Yeah. Um, Definitely a class I still session. Think, I still think 50 years from now, there will be kind of 9-11 themed upper div courses. I could see there being an independent study or like an upper division course where you do really dig or into a, that. Or yeah. a war on terror upper div U.S. history thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that we're going to look back on this and say like our response and our reaction was inappropriate. And what ends up happening in Afghanistan was entirely inappropriate. I don't think we're going to look back on it and say like, oh, well, we should have done all that stuff. I think we're going to look back at it with a really critical eye, especially Mm -hmm. like seeing what's going on in Afghanistan now and what's going to go on for the many years to come. We're going to look back and go, wow, we caused that because we got upset over 9-11. Yeah. 
Well, we should probably end it yeah, <laughs> on that a, happy note. It's been a while. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Well, for- thank you for joining us. Um, I know this is a little bit of a different episode. <laughs> yeah. We'll resume our uh, regular history. Talk yeah. Next um, week. Yep. I think we're going to talk about the history of the medical profession. Okay. In the United States starting next week, right? I am teaching a history of American we're medicine doing, class right now, so I'm more than happy to do so. We're going to kind of look at a couple of different points, and including an episode kind of devoted to things like the development of vaccines and things. Yeah. yeah. The history of vaccines. I'm excited about that. Um, go get your COVID shot. Please Not you. No, I if you're a you. listener and you don't have one, go get one. I think you just um, like made a not listener by saying that. If someone's listening and doesn't well, that's you know what, that's fine. <laughs> they're they're actually the people who should be listening. But if they're not going to, that's fine. I just I you, you need to get vaccinated. It's just like yeah, it's time. <laughs> There's no excuse. There's no excuse at this point. Um, anyway, well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff, and I'm Hillary. Have a good one. <laughs>